0: Blog Talk Radio. Namaste. You are now in the Funk Soul Cafe, a cool, hot, soulful radio show for artists, writers, and so much more, hosted by yours truly, Robert Batista. So sit back, grab a nice, warm, and soulful cup of java or chai, and listen and enjoy. No matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. I had the need to be perfect. I'd get hung up on mistakes. I couldn't even forgive myself, let alone others. Forgiveness was key in accepting that I am not perfect, and that's okay. When started as a simple personal project has become an examination of the importance of mercy. These are the spiritual words of tonight's exciting guest, author Lisa Mayer. Namaste, Lisa Mayer, and welcome to the Funk Soul Cafe.
1: Thank you, Robert. I'm excited to be here.
0: Let's first start off by taking your Java order. We have a wonderful variety of fine espressos, cappuccinos, and lattes. And we also have herbal teas for those tea lovers. So, what's your fancy, Lisa?
1: I'd like a butterbeer frappuccino, please.
0: Wow, excellent, excellent choice. Let me go ahead and get that going for you. And here you go. Enjoy.
1: Thank you. It was very good.
0: Lisa, so good having you on the Funk Soul Cafe. Let's start out with you discussing why you decided to become an author. Did you get the itch recently or did you want to do this for a while?
1: Well, I have always liked writing. When I was in high school, I would actually write poetry and short stories. I used to um, just, like, write creative short stories for fun. And um, I never really thought about publishing a book, but about, oh, it was 2010, I think, um, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, came out. Oh, no, it was 2005 when the first one came out, excuse me, and I just really liked it. So I started reading all the books, and I just fell in love with them, and I was very inspired by Narnia. And so after that, I just decided, I'm like, you know what, I, I think I'd like to write a book that's kind of like Narnia. And I started writing it in 2010, um, and I finished it uh, last year, and, and I published it in December. I self-published it and i love being a writer. um i'm really glad that that i do that. it's um it's like breathing. um writing is just really cool.
0: Now you said, Lisa, that you started out when you were younger writing poetry mm-hmm. and and short stories and and stuff, something that we all do. Um can you remember what some of your early poems were about?
1: Yeah, um Well, I used to write, and for English class, we had to write um, a poem, and I actually wrote it from the point of view of uh, Wendy uh, from Peter Pan. And I wrote it from the point of view of Wendy, and she had grown up, and uh, Peter Pan was coming and and wanted her, yeah, I, I was really into Peter Pan. I love Peter Pan. And he wanted her to come back to Neverland, and she was talking about how she was too old now, and she couldn't go back, and she was really sorry, and um, so I wrote that for English class, and then I wrote um, a couple of, like, just poems for the newspaper. I don't remember too much about those. And then I also wrote, um, we, would, we had creative writing class, and so I'd write a lot of stories for those.
0: The plot for your book, The Elethian Journeys, The Arrowbringer, sounds
1: fascinating.
0: What's it about, and where did the story come from?
1: Oh, um, well, it's, so the story is about um, this girl. Her name's Evangeline Lewis. She goes by Evie, and she has just found out um, that she has a leukemia diagnosis. Um, She knows that she's adopted, um, and so shortly after she gets this diagnosis, um, she receives this dream from this being called the Arrowbringer, and he tells her that, Um, or he asks her, you know, will you come to Aletheia because uh, the world's going to suffer. Something really bad is going to happen. And if you come, then you'll be able to stop it. And she finds out some information about her past. Um, She finds out that she's actually from Aletheia and that if she comes back, her presence will stop this horrible thing that's going to happen. And she really thinks it over and she knows it's the right thing to do. But because she's just received this leukemia diagnosis, she doesn't want to leave her family. So she feels terrible, but she says no. And so what the book is about is that later on, she ends up having to go um, uh, because her friend is in danger. And she ends up having to go. And so she has to face all these people that are suffering and everything that's happened is their fault. And it's her fault. And they end up going on this, um, this mission to kind of help save the world. And uh, the whole time she has this secret that everything that is happening is because she wouldn't help um, Alethea. and she could have prevented all of it, but she chose not to. And so the story kind of comes from we often hear about, you know, these stories of people who, like, go to other worlds, and usually when they're asked to go to other worlds people always say yes. Um, So I I wanted this to be a story of somebody who said no, and then the story is really about her um, coming to grips with what she's done and then seeking that forgiveness. That forgiveness piece is huge in the book.
0: When I was reading your book, the first thing I noticed was the dedication, which reads, for all those who show mercy – and especially all those who seek it. Lisa, what is the story behind why you chose this dedication?
1: Well, I really believe that one of the most important things in someone's life is mercy, and mercy is just another form of forgiveness, really. And I really feel that in our world, people don't show enough mercy and they don't show enough forgiveness, whether it's mercy for someone else or even mercy for ourselves. I know there's a lot of people out there who have made mistakes and they feel like they can never be forgiven. And so um, I wanted this book to be a story about somebody who did something that she thought was completely unforgivable and she comes to find out that she can be forgiven, and I want everyone to take that message to heart. That no matter what we've done, you know, even the person who's done the worst thing in the world can be forgiven. And I believe that everyone um, is seeking that um, that message, and that's what I wanted people to learn from my book.
0: Your main protagonist, Evangeline, or Evie from the start, seems very close to her family, and she seems to be a nurturer for her siblings. Would you say this is true, and was this your original intention?
1: Uh, that's definitely true, um, and I'm glad you were able to pick up on it because that's one of the things I wanted the reader to know, that Evie is very, very close to her family, and she feels you know, responsible for them. Um, and, and I apologize, what was the second part of your question?
0: I just wanted to know if you Lily, and intentionally made sure that we knew that she was close to her family, and you basically said yes, right?
1: Yes, it was very purposeful. That's what made the choice so hard for Evie, and I wanted the reader to understand that's why Evie you know, said no to the Arrowbringer because of her love for her family.
0: Exactly. Um, in the book's opening, Evie is diagnosed with leukemia. Did you do any research about this disease before you wrote the story, and did the, this disease in any way affect you personally?
1: I did do a lot of research. Um, the The point of – I wanted the main protagonists to have um, – you know a deadly disease, and there's actually a point to it, which is the readers go through the book they kind of understand why I did that. I did do a lot of research um I spent a really long time researching that as well as um there's a there's a ship in the book we find out later, and I had to do a lot of research about what ships are like um, right and you know i there's no one in my family personally who has leukemia, but um I know that a lot of people suffer from it and um, like suffer from all types of cancers, and so I try to be very um, mindful and respectful of that in the way it's um, portrayed in the book.
0: We authors choose the names of our characters very carefully, and many times names have distinct meanings. When you look at the name Evangeline, you become aware that the word angel is situated right in the middle. What was your thought process of that last, of that name?
1: Um, that's really interesting you point that out because I I actually never noticed that. Um, that's really cool, Robert. Um, well, I chose the name Evangeline, and it's on the very last page of the book, um, in the hard copy version. It's um, at the very end, and I believe also in the – um, soft copy. But there's actually, um, Evangeline is from the Latin, which means to bring the good news of the gospel. So the the book is an allegory. And so each um, of the characters' names does have special meaning. Um, and I, I did the nickname Evie just because um, I wanted her to have a nickname. I felt like the name Evangeline was uh, a very beautiful name, but I wanted her to have a nickname.
0: Yeah, it is a wonderful, beautiful name. And Angel, A-N-G-E-L, is right in the middle. It's it's amazing. Um, Lisa, you have graciously agreed to read part of your story for us. Can you set up the piece before you read it?
1: Sure. I, I have it ready uh, for now or for later.
0: Right now would be fine.
1: Okay. Um So this part um, isn't from the first chapter. It actually takes place in Chapter 7. So the book is divided into three parts. So this comes from Part 2. Part 2, The Arrowbringer's Mission, Chapter 7 into Alathea. And I'll go ahead and read it, and please let me know when you'd like me to stop. When the sensation of the portal finally ends, the wind sets me down gradually, leaving me a little shaken. It's completely dark but I catch the faint glittering of gold when the moonlight breaks through the clouds, hitting the ground beneath me. I'm on the temple stairs, in the palace city of Gaida. It takes a minute to adjust to the fact that I just stepped from afternoon into night. The world is a strange mixture of black, white, and gray. I scan the palace courtyard, finding that I remember the way from my dream. The courtyard is oddly still, littered with smoldering ruins. I squint my eyes to see through the smoky haze as I descend the stairs, able to make out the palace in the distance. I mentally picture the best way to get there, but it's difficult with so little light. What are you doing here? A voice demands sharply, startling me. My head jerks in the direction of the voice. I catch sight of a guard about my age, charging toward me on a black mare. I try to make out his features, but his face is too shadowed. "'Who's there?' I call, unnerved. "'I mean you no harm,' he answers. "'My name is Kitan.' "'I breathe a sigh of relief, "'remembering that Kitan had killed the dragon that attacked Sean. "'What is your name?' "'Before I can answer him, "'I suddenly get a strong feeling that I'm being watched. Despite the darkness, "'I catch sight of movement from the corner of my eye. "'Kitan and I both turn skyward, "'just in time to see a deep red.' 30-foot dragon emerging from the clouds. It passes through a moonbeam as it barrels toward us, revealing its blind, milky-white eyes, deadly claws, and sharp spikes protruding along its spine. We need to move! Kitan plunges his arm down to pull me up on the horse, but he isn't fast enough. Scorching coals wrap around my right leg, burning me straight through my jeans and yanking me to the ground. I cry out as the force of the the momentum snaps me backward, knocking my head against the ground. Make noise, Kitan yells urgently. I can't see you. The sound of his voice reminds me that this isn't over. I immediately start to scream, clawing at the ground as I try to slow my momentum. But it's not doing any good. Despite the darkness, I make out the dragon's tongue bringing me closer to its mouth. I have seconds left to live. At this thought, a surge of energy bursts through me, followed by a will to survive that is stronger than anything I've ever known. I grab hold of the tongue in a desperate attempt to get free, ignoring the searing pain in my hands as it burns my skin. But it isn't making a difference, and I'm quickly running out of time. I'm now inches from the dragon's mouth. Please not yet, Arrowbringer. From somewhere to my side, I hear Chiton shout as something red, hot, and sticky falls all over my body, soaking me. Chiton's sword is embedded in the dragon's neck, which is now severed from its body, dripping in blood. In the distance, I can hear more dragons roaring. Chiton quickly extracts his sword from the dragon's body before sheathing it. Are you strong enough to ride, he asks, removing his tunic and using it to cover his hands as he pulls the tongue off me. I nod, grimacing at the agony that rushes through me once the tongue is removed. He helps me to my feet, and I stifle a shout when I mount the horse. Kitan pulls the burned tunic back over his head before climbing up behind me, reaching over me to take the reins. He kicks the horse, which whinnies urgently before taking off. I grab at the horse's mane as we ride, clinging to the hair. For just a second, the moonlight eliminates the name stitched into the bridle and my breath catches in my throat. Feather? She has the same name as my horse. The dragon's shrieks echo eerily around us, and I hear screams in the distance. It might be my imagination, but I'm certain that I hear Jero's voice shouting orders. Chitin tenses as more cries of anguish reverberate in the night, some of them stopping short. He jerks hard on the reins and
0: that was so good. Wow. I oh, was thank locked you. I was locked in. Locked in. Wow, that was great. Um Lisa thank one five much. star you're welcome. One five star Amazon Review by Amazon Customer states In this election year in troubled times, this book offers a way forward. Every cynical politician should read this to renew their trust in the people they serve. Hurry, Arrowbringer, and hurry, Lisa Mayer, and write a sequel. Wow, great stuff, Lisa. The book's been out a few months. What are some of the other feedback that you've gotten about it so far?
1: So far, um, I've gotten mostly good reviews. I've had a couple people um, who have uh, I they've read it and reviewed it and have said, you know, allegory really isn't my thing, but it was, and fantasy is not really my thing, but we still enjoyed the book. Right. Um, one of the reviews on there, um, and I, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was basically from a reader who um, said it was an unexpectedly enjoyable allegory, and that one really, um, I really appreciated that very much, because here was a reader who was saying, you know, like, allegory isn't my thing, and this book is you know, an allegory, but, you know, the writing was good, and um, the plot, and it, you know, it was a page-turner. It kept me interested, and I can't remember everything uh, the reviewer said, but I was uh, very grateful for it um, because I was hoping that even people who don't enjoy allegory would still enjoy the book, much like Narnia. Narnia is an allegory, but many readers who like it, you know, even if they don't like allegory, they still enjoy the book.
0: A lot of new writers listen to my show. And a lot of times one of their first questions is about publishing. You mentioned that you self-published. Um, talk about any challenges that you had in this publishing process of your book.
1: Sure. Um, I published through CreateSpace on Amazon, and okay. it, was, it was very easy to publish it. Um, I really like the, the team there. They, they email you back right away. They answer your questions Um, So the publishing process itself, you know, I mean, obviously the editing takes a while, but the publishing process itself I felt was very smooth and very easy. The main difficulty I've had with self-publishing is um, the marketing piece. Um, Like most authors, marketing is not uh, really my favorite thing. Um, One of the many reasons I'm so grateful that I was able to be a guest on your show um, to talk about the book so people know it's there. Um, and I also just enjoy talking about it. So I think marketing um, has definitely been the most difficult um, kind of you know, trial and error, seeing which things work, which things don't. I will say that my uh, greatest marketing tool thus far has been Twitter. I've made a lot of connections um, that I would not have made had I not used Twitter. So right. definitely um, Twitter is awesome for marketing for, publisher, or for uh, authors.
0: Yes, it is. Um, Let's talk about Lisa Mayer, the person. What was your childhood like?
1: Um, I had a very fun childhood. Um, I grew up with an imagination. One of the things that I really um, feel bad about for kids today is that a lot of them walk around on their phones, which there were no phones when I was a kid, (laughs) so (laughs) I didn't have a phone, and I'm really glad I didn't. Um, I walked around just with a whole different world in my head. I would carry a book in front of my nose between classes, um, or at school I would sneak my book under my desk and try to read, and I, I'd get it taken away, of course, but I'd still do it as soon as I got the book back. Um, I loved reading, um, and I would go outside um, with my sister, and we would, you know, we just play outside all day long and, you know, make up, you know stories of different worlds and i mean i really think that i was writing even before i was writing because i was using my imagination uh we had this bush in our yard and it it was a huge bush and it it was like one of those bushes where you could actually go inside it and there was a place to sit and it was big enough you could like set up a picnic in there and we would just go out in the yard and play in that bush for hours and pretend we were you know on deserted islands on other planets you know whatever, like, and we just had so much fun, um, and so I really grew up using my imagination, I grew up, um, watching, uh, and being inspired by superheroes before it was cool, um, I, and so just, you know, I used my imagination from a very young age, and I've been very grateful and blessed to have had that, because I think it's really shaped who I am today, I still have an imagination, um, and I still, you know, I'm inspired by superheroes, and I spend a lot of time in my head thinking of my story. So I think I'm still using my imagination in the same way. I'm just now channeling it into a constructive book. Um,
0: and that's such a good thing. Um, and you're right about the the youngsters with the cell phones now. Um, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's almost like it's, it's soldered to their hands now. <laughs> uh, Lisa, what were some of the books and authors that inspired you in your youth?
1: Um, I grew up uh, reading The Giver was actually one of my very favorite books growing up. Um, I also read The Boxcar Children. Um, I liked them a lot. I also read um Well, I actually started off with Lord of the Rings by watching the movies. I had never read the books, and then I watched the movies, and then I loved those, so I read the books. Um, A lot of uh, creative books. Um, I also read uh, another series that's actually based off Narnia called The Archives of Anthropos. Um, I grew up reading those, um, and I really enjoyed them. Um, They're very similar to Narnia as well. And just a lot of – all the books I read were adventure books. I liked adventures a lot, and I still do. I've never really been into, like, um, I guess dramas, for lack of a better word. I'm more into adventures and fantasies and science fiction, stuff like that.
0: Let's talk about how your book reflects who you are as an individual person and how this story reflects your inner self and who Lisa Mayer is.
1: Okay. Um, there's definitely really a lot of me in this book. Um, there's a lot of me in the characters, and there's definitely, if someone really wants to know, like, my faith life and what I think about, you know, things, all they have to do is read the book. Um, most of the characters, not all of them, but most of them really reflect um, different parts of me. Um, Like there's characters in there who are merciful. I I try to be merciful, and there's characters in there who mess up, and I mess up, and uh, there's characters in there who um, say things like it is, and sometimes a little bit too impolitely, which I do that at times, and I need to work on that. Um, And there's characters in there who they want to do the right thing, no matter what it means, and no matter what the personal cost, and I can't say that I always do the right thing despite the personal cost. I'm sure that I don't, but I really try to. Uh, doing the right thing is really important to me. and so writing the book really gave me a chance to express everything that I believe about the world and that I believe about people um, and God's great love for people and a lot of that shows in the book and in the messages that I want people to understand and that I think people need to know, especially pertaining uh, to mercy. Mercy is very important to me, and I, I try to be merciful um, in everything I do. I'm, I'm not perfect at it, obviously, but I always that's my goal is to always be merciful.
0: The best writers are the ones who bear their soul, and I think you definitely did that with your book. Lisa, I know being an author is very important to you, but can you explain how writing has affected and changed your life?
1: Sure. I Now that I write, I can't believe I ever didn't write. Um, it's like breathing for me. If I go a couple of days without writing, I start to feel, I don't know what the right word is, almost like... Um, like, there's a muscle I haven't used, and I need to use it. Right. Um, and, and I just feel that when I write, it kind of lets out who I am, and it's a form of just pure self-expression. And um, I read this meme once that writing is, like, basically, you know, visually hallucinating um, and, like, making up this whole world, and you see it in your head. Um. Right. And that's really how it is when I, when I'm writing and I'm creating, um, it feels as if sometimes the characters are, um, they're telling their story through me and I feel like I I need to put it on paper. And sometimes, uh, one of the most surprising things that I never realized about being a writer is that sometimes things will come out that I didn't anticipate or expect or plan.
0: Yep. And it
1: just, I know. It's and it's so funny when it does that. Um, I won't say what it is because I don't want to give away spoilers, but there is one moment that I hadn't planned um in my book and when I wrote it I just did not see it coming and like um it was kind of a scary moment and it actually scared me and I was like, Wow, that was really good. I I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> and then I when I When I tell people that who aren't writers, they're like, what? How can that be? But, you know, when I talk to other writers, they're like, oh, that happens to me. I know what you mean. (laughs)
0: Lisa, I've had characters, my characters actually dictate to me how I'm (laughs) going to write that scene. (laughs) I have one thought, Mm -hmm. but the character changes that thought and says, no, you're not going to write it this way. You're going to write it that way. So (laughs) I can understand 100%. Lisa, you wrote The Arrowbringer as an allegory, which Webster's defines as a story in which the characters and events are symbols that stand for ideas about human life or for a political or historical situation. Talk about why you decided to write your story in this humanistically symbolic manner.
1: Well, a lot of it was Um, I mean, I'm heavily inspired by C.S. Lewis um, and I even, you know, I give him definitely shout outs in my book Um, and I decided to write it as an allegory because I felt like it's been a long time since Narnia was written and it's also been a long time since the Archives of Anthropods were written and I know that there are other allegories out there but I felt like there wasn't one out there that really captured um, the type of uh, love and magic and wonder that C.S. Lewis had captured. I, C.S. Lewis is really in a league of his own, you know. And, and I just really wanted a story out there that reflected God's love and that in a way that was engaging And in a way that was unassuming and that didn't make people feel that they were being preached to. Um, And I was hoping that it could engage people and draw them toward um, God and draw them toward uh, that love that we all want so badly in a way that didn't make them feel like they were being judged, if that makes sense
0: it makes all the sense in the world in closing what's next for lisa Mayer? what other irons do you have in the fire coming up i know you have the sequels going on anything else
1: um mostly it's just um, i wrote the rough draft of the sequel and i'm working on the third one the rough draft i hope to write Um, seven like C.S. Lewis did, but I'm going to start with the three and then I get those published and then kind of go from there. That's basically my plan right now.
0: Sounds like a plan.
1: So give
0: out any contact information you'd like to give out if someone wants to contact you, uh, follow you, or any contact information, website, anything.
1: Sure. Um, so I do have a, a book email, and that is The Arrowbringer, all one word, so T-H-E-A-R-R-O-W-E-R-I-N-G-E-R at gmail.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter, um, and the Twitter follow is at Lisa underscore Mayer. Mayer, 2015, and I'm also on Facebook. There's an Alaskan Journeys uh, Facebook page as well.
0: You have been listening to the Funk Soul Cafe with your host Robert Batista. Look for my free short stories, Carmela's Dream, and My Baby Has No Name on Smashwords.com. My guest has been author humanist, and woman of faith, Lisa Mayer, and her inspiring debut book. The first of the series is called The Alethean Journeys, The Arrowbringer. Make sure to order your copy today. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being my guest on the Funk Soul Cafe.